It sounds good. Today, my guest is Professor Peter Lish. Uh, I will keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Peter as a person. Professor Leach is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Leach is an AIB fellow and a member of the Economic Society of Australia. He is also a fellow of the Australian Institute of Management. His research is published in diverse journals in IB, operations management, HR management, marketing and technology management. He sits on the editorial boards of JIBS and the Journal of International Management. He is currently an area editor of JIBS and he has been a senior editor of the Journal of World Business. He has co-edited special issues with JEBS, Journal of World Business, and Australian Journal of Management. He has written over 60 articles, 10 chapters, and three textbooks. In 2019, he was awarded the 50th anniversary silver medal for publications in JEBS. He was an early adapter of the AIB 39 country initiative with a container of textbooks delivered to Kenya. Thank you, Peter, for joining us. Thank you, Ilgaz. It's my privilege to be part of this uh, this program, and I look forward to uh, your asking me questions about how I see IB and why I ended up in IB. Thank you. Uh, first question, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? So that's an interesting question to start off with, because I'm a, I'm a child of the early 50s, 1950s, and context, I guess, is important. Um, and when I grew up, which we'll probably talk about a little bit more later, uh, we didn't have television. And um, um, I used to listen to the radio, uh, a valve radio, an old radio, as a young boy. And um, at the time, the Soviet Union was, was prominent in space. And I was intrigued by what was going on there. So, look, you're asking me that question. I'd like to say uh, I had ambitions of being a cosmonaut. <laughs> but, that's, but that's not true. That's not true. I didn't. And um, um, going on at the same time, um, my dad had various uh, occupations. In fact, when I think about this, I actually attended six primary schools in seven years as a young boy and two secondary schools. So I'd been through eight schools in my primary and secondary education. So we, we moved house quite a lot. And my dad was variously a farmer, a builder and a hotel publican. And um, I remember going to with him on to construction sites when he was building and um, helping him as a young boy. So I guess in, if you really, if I really thought about it, I, I probably had ambitions of following suit. I enjoyed being on the farm. I can remember being put on a tractor as a young boy when I couldn't even touch the pedals with my feet. And, um, and I'd spend the day driving round and round uh, ploughing a field. So in Australia, agriculture is very large. 
and um, I'd be put on the tractor and early in the morning and uh, and uh, um, my, my father would jump on the tractor at morning tea to stop it and we'd have a cup of tea beside the wheel and the same would happen at lunch and the same would happen at afternoon tea. And I loved this. I felt quite a hero just uh, driving this big machine. And um, so I guess uh, in those days, I, I would have anticipated either being a builder or a farmer. But um, no, I, I really didn't think about it a lot. But uh, that was my life as a young boy. It was a great life. Yeah, it sounds great. Uh, where did you grow up? I beg your pardon? Where did you grow up? So I grew up on what's called the Darling Downs in Australia. So Brisbane is the capital. I live in the state of Queensland, which is in the northern part of Australia. Uh, if you travel west of Brisbane, um, you come to a town called Toowoomba. And Toowoomba is the commercial hub for the Darling Downs, which is a very rich and expansive uh, grain growing a cereal growing agricultural area. So we, as I said, we moved around a lot between hotels and a farm and building, but we all we were always on the Darling Downs other than for a very short period um, in the 1950s when my dad was building houses on the Gold Coast, which is um, close to where I am now in Brisbane but mainly on the Darling Downs in, in Queensland. And uh, when did you realise the difference between domestic versus international? Yeah, well, that's a really interesting question, um, an appropriate one, obviously, for, for IB scholars. So as I said, yeah, I used to be fascinated listening to the radio in the evenings. And, um, and I would listen to, I think in those days, I'm not sure, but I think... It, it would have been BBC World Service, and um, and I and I used to listen to this news reports about the Russians in space, um, and I used to also be fascinated because of my agricultural background in the uh, in the in the dire situation of agricultural uh, crops failing in in big countries like. The Soviet Union or Russia and uh, and China, and and you know coming from an agricultural background, this was unfathomable to me that that agriculture would fail and uh, it would threaten the lives of people. But it was true, and I would listen to the radio with intent that hundreds of thousands of people were were dying in in some parts of the world because crops were failing. So. Thinking about it now, it, that was probably my my first introduction to the fact that there was a big world out there beyond where I lived, and um, it was a world where lots of things were happening, scientific developments like the space programs, and basic things like uh, agriculture failing. Um, so, yeah, I lived in a very localized world, which was a very um, healthy and vibrant and expansive world, uh, but there was a big world beyond me, and that that stuck stayed with me ever since. Um, 
sometimes, probably more often than we imagine, living in Australia, we look at the world differently than people look at the world from other parts. I guess we all look at the world in particular ways, but living in the Southern Hemisphere where we do here, um, we look north and most of the world is there and it's different. It's different in lots of ways um, compared to Australia. And that's being highlighted right at the moment with uh, this pandemic problem. So yeah, I, I became acutely aware of my local environment, my domestic context and, and the international context at a very, very young age. Uh, very interesting, fascinating. Um, what is something uh, that people might find interesting that you wouldn't put on your CV? Yes, that's interesting too, because we don't put everything on our CVs. Um, there are a few things that aren't on my CV that people might find interesting. Um, one of those would be from a scholarly point of view, I've never actually studied any one course in international business in my whole life. <laughs> I've never studied a course in international business. Um, and, and now, and for the last quite a reasonable period of time, it's been my life, but I've never actually studied a course in international business. And in another context, I guess I've had a different life um, uh, since I wrote when I wrote my, up until I wrote my PhD, I'd still been, this is my 45th year in academia. So I've been in academia a long time. But for the first half of that, I had other lives alongside my academic life. Um, for example, um, after I finished my master's degree, um, I actually bought a farm. And it was a reasonable farm and it, it was probably um, the size of an enterprise that one could have made a living out of uh, by, its, by itself. But I was teaching, in fact, in those days, I was teaching statistics and industry economics. Um, but I bought a farm because my master's was in agricultural economics. And, um, and I took a decision that if, and I liked agricultural economics, that if, if, I, uh, if I bought a farm, I might be able to demonstrate that I knew a bit about ag economics. So I did buy a farm. Uh, it was a horticultural enterprise. Uh, it took a while to build it up. Uh, my father was very interested in it with his agricultural background. So we worked together on it. So basically the farm was, uh, I grew tomatoes. I grew tomatoes for eight months of the year. Tomatoes, zucchini, melons, pumpkins. I had cattle and I also had a small, with a few hectares of lychee and avocado trees, a small orchard. So I enjoyed that life. It was productive and healthy and uh, I made money out of it alongside my academic career. Um, I sold that farm because also at the same time, and this is not on my CV, I received um, in the early 1980s, after my 
interest in, in my master's, I, I received a secondment to go to Western Samoa in the middle of the Pacific. And um, I was to spend a year there, which I did. And part of my remit was to help set up a, a school of agriculture attached to the University of the South Pacific and work with the Australian government on some of the aid projects that the Australian government was involved in in Western Samoa. So this was a phenomenally interesting interlude into my life. I was still in my late 20s, um, so it was, uh, it was different. And uh, I came back to Australia and resurrected uh, my interest in the farm. And lo and behold, uh, 18 months later, I was back in Fiji uh, for another year doing much the same. So I enjoyed that life. And in fact, it was in Fiji that I decided that I should write a PhD because I was working alongside agricultural specialists from Belgium and New Zealand in dairying and horticulture and so on. And their meal ticket was a PhD. And I thought, gee, I like this life. It was interesting and different, but I needed to write a PhD. So uh, that, that prompted me to actually write a PhD. Uh, so, you know, things changed after that. I sold the farm because it was too intense and I couldn't allocate time to it. And I went through a lot of decision processes myself at that stage as to whether I wanted to buy a bigger farm and become more substantially uh, an agriculturalist or whether I would take the other path into academe and substantiate a career in academe. So uh, I actually took the latter part, sold the farm, invested it in real estate up on what we call the Sunshine Coast here in Queensland. And interesting, there with my dad, um, we built um, um, home units, housing apartments. So I had another, dimension to my life for a while building with my dad, even though I still had an academic uh, full-time job at the same time. But in those days, we could do that. We could, uh, we could mix an academic career with other interests, but um, you can't do that anymore. Um, the demands of an academic career are just too great. So that's not on my CV, but it's been a big part of my life in the past. And um, I guess, I guess to, a, to a large degree, it's uh, still a big part of me. I, I still enjoy uh, knowing about agriculture and, um, and that aspect of the Australian economy, but I don't participate in it. Uh, fascinating. Um, looking back at the things you've done, uh, are there things that you say uh, is there a thing that you wish you would have done that you didn't? Do you have a regret? Look, yes, I do. I have regrets. Um, if people say they don't have regrets, I just don't believe them. I, I think we all have regrets. Like thinking about it uh, since you approached me about this interview, one regret I do have is when I finished my master's, um, I was at uh, the University of New England, Australia, which was re well reputed for its ag economics. And, I, and my colleagues there, my student colleagues ended up in the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank, for example, 
working in, in agricultural and economic development. And I could have been in that cohort, but I chose not to. And, um, and I, I, I sometimes wonder if I'd pursued that at career, what life would be like. Um, and I also similarly wonder what life would have been like if I had pursued the first career when I left school. When I graduated from uh, secondary school, I actually won a scholarship with a big company in Australia called Colonial Sugar Refining Company Limited, which was to study chemical engineering um, because I'd been a pure academic student at school uh, in the maths and sciences. Um, I won this scholarship. It was very, it was prestigious. There are only a few handed out in Australia. So when I left school, I went to Sydney to study and um, part of the deal was to work part-time with CSR in their sugar ref refineries or their distilleries. And then you would complete the latter part of your course full-time. So um, I actually started off uh, studying chemical engineering. Uh, after the first year that changed to geology geophysics because CSR at that stage, we're getting heavily involved in the mining industry in Australia, which was just starting to take off in a big way. Um, keep in mind, this is the late 60s, very early 70s. So CSR wanted me to change to geology geophysics, which I did. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I got disheartened with, uh, with, with that, uh, with CSR generally. And I left and, um, and, and chose to study actually a business degree where I first met economics. And it was from then on that um, I started to develop a, a, a serious interest in things economics. So that's not on my CV, um, but I do wonder what life would have been like as a, an executive possibly today in CSR. Uh, I do wonder what life would have been like as a uh, as an ag economist in the World Bank or the Asian Development Bank or some other development agency in the world. But I'm in this life and um, and I'm very happy and it's been a, a most rewarding life. So, um, but it's been a different path right into academia than a lot of sure. people might have chosen. Sure. Other choices we make. Uh, about research, uh, how, how do you describe your research to people who don't read scholarly uh, articles? And how do you explain the importance of your work? So, look, early in my, I wrote my PhD on a topic called government mandated counter trade. It was written in economics. And um, government mandated counter trade is when governments form arrangements with large companies to wrestle special concessions out of those companies to have some of that workload done in their own economies. So this is when governments buying computer equipment or at the time Australia, Qantas was a government owned airline in Australia. And when Qantas would buy um, commercial aircraft, the Australian government would wrestle special concessions out of out of Boeing and so on to have technologies placed in the Australian 
industrial sectors and so on. So that got me involved in what's going on in the world of multinationality with big companies. And it's not only big companies because that workload that's being delivered in Australia at the time was actually workload taken up by small and medium-sized tech firms building components for jets and uh, military equipment and so on. So that got me in the world of big firms and little firms and the relationships between big firms and little firms. So from the early days, my interest has been uh, how small firms engage with big firms in the world of international business and how those small firms move into the international arena um, through one means or another. So this is, this is all about the internationalization process of firms and how firms go about engaging overseas. So that, that's basically what my main interest is. I have a particular interest in notions of exchange in those relationships, but it's not something that I've, that I've been able to grapple with uh, substantially through theorising those types of concepts. But necessarily when I talk about big firms and little firms engaging, I'm necessarily talking about markets and how markets operate to provide the foundation for which firms engage with one another. Um, I'd love to write a theory of markets, but I'm not smart enough to do that. But that's always underlying you know, my interests, markets and, and engagement with markets and how markets are created. So, um, yeah, that's my interest generally. Uh, about uh, understudied areas in IB research, underutilized contexts, uh, some new variables that people should be looking at. Uh, so I want to uh, ask you a question about what do you see as the next five to 10 years in the field as the most lucrative areas? Yes, that's interesting. Um, look, I, as time goes on, I, I, I don't, in, in, in writing papers or thinking about the journal to do this, but privately I probably do, I retreat back to some of my economics days and how ec economists think about the world. And economists grapple with similar things to what we do. In fact, in, in, from time to time, I've been asked what, how I perceive IB. And I very early in my career, I, I, I struck upon this notion rapidly that I describe international business as the microeconomics of international economics. And, um, and one thing that economists are very good at, I mean, in the recent past, they're not very good at lots of things like explaining phenomena and predicting and so on, but they're very good at understanding the assumptions that they need to make in their theorizing and their empirical work. And one thing I don't think IB people particularly do well is uh, outlining the assumptions uh, implicit in their work. There are explicit assumptions and there are implicit assumptions. And I think we could do better in IB if we thought more about those assumptions because 
it's those assumptions that we make and that we should make, but we don't make that tend to prove or disprove what we're trying to say about IB phenomena. So I think we should spend more time on, on in our theorizing and our empirical work about what assumptions we are making about the people that are doing international business, particularly, um, and uh, the behavioral assumptions and so on. Uh, I think if you ask me for a particular variable, there's, there's probably lots of variables, but one variable that, that uh, or one dimension that, that I've wedded to in the last several years, and this was a consequence of conversations with a dear colleague who's no longer with us, Professor Lawrence Welch, um, who, who, who has meant a lot to me in, in my career, but he's no longer with us. We used to talk a lot about uncertainty and risk. And, and uh, the more I understand about IB and what's going on in, in the IB domain, the more I come to the conclusion that uh, we should spend more time theorizing about uncertainty and about risk, about risk in the decisions taken by managers of big firms and little firms involved in international business. Um, I think risk and uncertainty are fundamental but we gloss over them because they're very difficult concepts to grapple with. Uh, about the evolution of the field or the culture of IB scholarship, what can you say? What was it like before uh, and what do you see it as? So I can answer that. I can talk about that from two, two viewpoints. Um, some years ago with some colleagues, we actually did a study and published it in a journal called Scientometrics about the evolution of the field. Um, we looked at all the papers published in JIBS up until then, midnight, uh, 2007 or thereabouts. So I know a bit about the evolution of the field as recorded in its journal, uh, its premier journal, JIBS. Um, so look, to cut that long story short, I would say IB evolved from a very early interest in the, the nature of the multinational and what it was doing in the world, which was foreign direct investment. Keep in mind, this was just post-World War II. Big firms were becoming prominent. What they were doing overseas was prominent, foreign direct investment. Economists didn't have a lot to say about that. Um, we're still more interested in trade, whereas the IB people theorise that the Buckleys and the Cassons and the Rugmans and the Hennarts and so on. So that was a great foundation for IB. And alongside that was this other interest in the internationalisation process through, through the Uppsala School, Johansson Valnay and colleagues. So that's been a long-standing interest. Um, and then today we've got new form enterprises so I think the field, I feel the field, if you took a very uh, unidirectional viewpoint, could be described as taking a particular interest in how firms respond to changes in the nature and behavior of markets worldwide. 
because firms take the nature and activities going on in markets seriously to the point at which they have to adjust their organisational forms to accommodate those different natures of markets. And that's why we see the global factory today rather than the, than the highly internalised M&E that was post-Second World War. So I suspect that at some stage in the future with digitalization and so on, we'll see the, the nature of the international firm evolve even more so. And it will continue to evolve because markets will continue to change and things will happen to change those markets. So yeah, that's, that's basically how I see the field evolving. Markets change, firms adjust to those changes and therefore, a lot of the other things we look at in IB uh, uh, need to be updated and theorised for us to have a better understanding of what's going on in, in, in our domain. Thank you, Peter. Um, about advice and mentoring, who, who, who had the most impact on your academic uh, upbringing? So, again, that's interesting. Um, as I said, Professor Lawrence Welsh had a lot to do because he wrote his PhD. He taught me as an undergraduate in industrial economics, international economics. Um, he wrote his PhD and published it in the mid-1970s. And I did some work on this in talking about Lawrence's contribution in various forums. And I found it to be the first PhD in the world that had the word internationalization in the title. And he was particularly interested and he did visit and he had people from Uppsala visit here in Australia in the early 1970s. So that, that notion of internationalization was very prominent in his life and therefore mine because he used to talk about it. And he was trying to get me to write a PhD earlier than I did um, because there was lots of things needed to be done. So he had a great influence. And the other person who, persons who had great influences were my PhD supervisor, Professor Don Lamberton, was actually here at the University of Queensland. He was an information economist, um, which, which seemed foreign to what we've been talking about, but he was instrumental in, in getting me through that PhD. And it was that PhD that changed my life from being one in economics to being one in IB because it, it had a wider reception in the international business domain than what it did in the economics domain. And the other fellow who had a, a strong influence was Professor uh, Tim Kaviskel, because he introduced me in the late 1980s to Professor Gary Knight uh, and invited me to visit he and Gary at Michigan State University in the US where Gary was writing his PhD and we met and we had a long talk and it was a short visit and I can remember that uh, Gary passed some notes to me under my hotel door early in the morning that I was flying out. And it was a result of our, our little chat that 
that we wrote our first uh, Jibs paper, uh, and it was about information internalization um, rather than markets internalization. And um, that got me seriously thinking about publication in Jibs and about thinking about uh, things a little bit differently than what I had previously. So uh, those two people, those people were very important to me in the early stages of my career. And um, I could rattle off lots of names, but those people were instrumental in reorienting me into IB. Thank you. Peter, uh, about giving advice to young scholars and PhD students, uh, what can you say about things not to do? Things not to do? Right. Um, one thing that PhD students I would advise not to do would be to get too enthusiastic early in their candidature about collecting data and tinkering with the data analysis. I think that PhD students should spend more time early in their candidature becoming more steeped in the literature and particularly the theoretic, the, the literature on theory. I think what we need more in our field and what we need more in our PhD candidates is a stronger commitment to theory. And, um, and albeit that, that's tough to do as a young uh, PhD student because you can see the clock tick ticking and you might feel that you've not got too many footprints on the ground. Um, but I think that investment in understanding theory, becoming cognizant of all the different genre of theory that exist, both in our field and in cognate fields can be hugely rewarding rather than uh, too early in the piece um, tinkering with data. That, that's interesting. Um, what is one thing that you, you, you would say, I wish I had known that so that it would save so much time, pain and agony uh, now that I'm looking back? Uh, well, carrying on from what I did, I wish I had wedded to the theory more so uh, early in my career. Um, look, I thoroughly enjoy reading theory these days. Um, I would love to be a stronger theorist. Um, but, you know, you do need time. Um, at, right at this point in my career, I'm working with a colleague, uh, Catherine Welsh, Lawrence's daughter. Mm. Uh, and part of that paper, which has not had uh, distribution as yet, is that um, uh, the view that we could do theory a lot better than we do in IB. And there's a lot more we could be doing with strong old theory by understanding it better than we, we understand it. And um, so, yes, I wish I had. I mean, as an economist in the early days, 
I did wed to theory. In fact, in my PhD, I spent a lot of time in two theories, uh, Williamson's markets and hierarchies uh, paradigm, and also the, what's called the theory of technological competition. And those two theories formed a substantial part of my PhD. Uh, that was necessary because in economics, and Don Lamberton was adamant about this, that um, it, it needed to be framed in, in strong theory. So, yeah, I wish I'd wedded to theory more so um, early in my career. Thank you. For the sake of time, uh, what is the question that I should have asked you but haven't? Oh. Look, I guess you, uh, given that this is an IB audience um, and it's all about us and careers and so on, you, I, you could have asked me more about whether I find it a rewarding career and, and how, how I find my life in IB fitting in the bigger picture of academe. Um, and I do think about these things because uh, I have spent time in my career, um, what you might call institution building. Um, I, I, was, I wrote a report here at the University of Queensland back in the late 1990s, early 2000s that led to um, the formation of our school here called the UQ Business School. Um, so I, I, and I was instrumental in my previous position at the University of Tasmania in building a school uh, and introducing IB into that school. So I've, I've had to deal with championing IB as a scholarly field in universities. And that's not always been easy um, because being a derivative field, um, some people see the internationalization of the functional fields, such as international marketing, international HR, international finance, international accounting, whatever it might be, sufficient training in students to bring an understanding of things international into their lives. I don't accept that because I be, believe I'd be to be an integrative field, albeit a derivative field. And as such, we do think about things differently than what say international marketers or international HR people might. Um, I think we've got a, a more expansive view about international, things international. And I've had to champion that in universities. And I will admit it's been successful. Um, IB is the second most popular major in our programs here in the business school at UQ. We've, we're a large business school. We've got, depending upon how it's measured, 10 to 12,000 students in the business school. Um, about one in five students at the University of Queensland is a business student. So, and we're a, we're a research intensive science and engineering university. So there's a continual challenge uh, to champion IB 
as a scholarly field in a science and engineering based university. So um, that's something that I, I'm mildly proud of having been able to do that, but it's, it's, it's something that, um, that I think IB scholars in similar situations around the world are probably grappling with also. Thank you so much for this inter interview. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, thank you for your time. Look, thank you. I've enjoyed speaking with you. And, um, and uh, I look forward to watching myself and, and um, we're down for posterity now. So, uh, and it's, it's honestly, it's been a, a great career in IB. It's a great community of scholars and I've thoroughly enjoyed my time. Thank you. Thanks.